Good morning, my name is Jason Ford and I'm the missions pastor here at The Point and I want to welcome you to our online worship and teaching time that we are committed to keeping available for you uh, that might not feel comfortable joining us here on Sunday mornings. We have begun worshiping here in our worship center at 815 for seniors and those that are compromised uh, with their health and then at 9.30 and 11. But we are committed to continuing during these days of um, this pandemic to continue to provide an online option for you. So glad that you've checked in with us. I pray that this is a, a time when you can focus on God's word, that you can be encouraged, that you can be uplifted, and that you can grow in your closeness and in your walk with Jesus. Hey, just a couple of reminders I want to make to you. Uh, we want to stay connected with you and know how we can best pray for you. And a great way to communicate with us is at prayer at longviewpoint.org. You can email us at prayer at longviewpoint.org. And we as a staff will pray for those needs. Uh, if we can reach out to you in any way, please make a note of that. We want to stay connected with you during this time. So hey, we're going to continue in worship and the teaching of God's Word this morning. I want to pray for us as we do. Heavenly Father, we recognize you as sovereign Lord, ruling, reigning, in control of all things. Lord, we trust you. We're thankful for your mercy and, our gra and your grace towards us. And I pray that this morning, as we gather in this format, Lord, that you would still speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Use your word to encourage, uplift, and challenge us, Father. Lord, this is your time. So we ask that you would take it and use it for your good purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.
His love so undeniable I, I can hardly speak peace so unexplainable I, I can hardly think as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still as you call me deeper still into love
is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our
morning, Longview Point. I hope that you're doing well where you are. It's good to be with you this morning in this format. I hope that things are going smoothly for your family. I want to encourage you, if you would, to take out your Bibles and lay aside any distractions to gather uh, friends and family around and uh, still yourselves and make ready for the study of God's Word. This morning, we're going to begin a series that will take us through the next several weeks in the book of Philippians. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin our reading and our study together in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 1. This is going to be a fun book to study. Philippians is one of my favorite books in the New Testament. It's Paul's correspondence with a church that had been such an encouragement to him. Paul is in the midst of his first imprisonment, the chronology of Paul's life is that there was an imprisonment um, at, at this particular juncture in his life. Uh, you, you may be familiar with a second imprisonment, which is covered in 2 Timothy. Uh, that's typically one that we think about first. But Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Ephesians are all written within this first um, imprisonment for the Apostle Paul. They're known as the prison epistles. Paul is eventually released. He writes 1 Timothy during that release and then is later imprisoned a second time during which time he writes the epistle of 2 Timothy. This morning we're going to be looking at Philippians where Paul celebrates the faithfulness of the church in Philippi in providing for the needs that he had. In fact, one of the, one of the things that Paul really celebrates in Philippians 1 and even throughout the book is the generosity and the faithfulness of the Philippian church in spite of his imprisonment. It was as though they shared in Paul's imprisonment with him. He describes them here as partners in the gospel, and that partnership was not interrupted by his imprisonment. They remained faithful, sending Epaphroditus to Paul to provide for financial needs that he might have had and to be of support and encouragement to him in a variety of ways. Let's look now at Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. We're going to read together this morning verses 1 through 11. The Bible says, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge in every kind of discernment, so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. We get to the substance of our passage and into something of the body of the letter itself in verse number 3, following a brief introduction in verses 1 and 2. Paul simply begins by taking note of the fact that he and Timothy are at the present hour joined together in ministry. He intends that Timothy will in the future serve the people of Philippi and wants to commend Timothy to them as a brother, in fact a faithful brother. He says later of Timothy that they are of like mind, they share passions, their interests in the gospel are the same, that their hearts are beating together. Paul desires to do ministry among the Philippians, <clears throat> and so, do, so too does Timothy. He describes the two of them as servants or as slaves of Christ Jesus and addresses his letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In a strange way, Paul is joining together the work of Father and Son in this introduction. Grace to you, he says, and peace from God our Father. 
It's a common Old Testament or Old Covenant introduction to speak peace to someone. It lives on in contemporary Judaism with, this, with the saying of shalom, which just means peace. It's understood that peace comes from God. But here, peace is preceded by the promise of grace, which comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We've alluded to this a number of times in our study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John over the past few weeks. But peace ultimately, and this is such a fitting word for this day and time, peace is ultimately the product of saving grace in our life. If, if we, if we want to have peace personally, it will be the direct result of the presence of Christ's grace in our life. The work of regeneration, salvation results in peace in our life. If we want to have peace as a group of people, it will be the product of saving grace experienced on the part of those involved in the group. Peace is the product of saving grace. In verses 3 and following, Paul turns his attention to his gratitude and his prayer life as it relates to the people of Philippi. In fact, he says, I thank God for every remembrance of you. When I think of you, I'm celebrating and I'm praying and thanking God for the countless ways that you have been a blessing to me. I've, I've titled this series of sermons, Always Rejoicing, because that's such an incredible theme in the book of Philippians. But in reality, it's a theme in all of the New Testament. Time and time and time again, we're commanded to rejoice. And there's reference to the rejoicing of the church, not just in the good times, but in the bad as well. What highlights or provides such a background for Paul's rejoicing in the book of Philippians is the fact that he is in prison. And yet he sees his circumstances so much differently than so many others see the world. He says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, no matter what happens to me, I win. He commands the Philippian church in chapter 4, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. No matter what happens in our life, we have reason to rejoice because of what Jesus has done for us. But on a practical level, here Paul describes some things that bring about rejoicing, that move him to rejoice and to celebrate uh, given what the Philippian church has provided for him and the friendship that he's found with them. Verses 3 through 8 describe for us the source of Paul's joy. This is one of those places in the New Testament where there are these long run-on sentences. In the Greek text, verses 3 through 8 are all a single sentence. We'll try to move slowly through each phrase here, beginning in verse 1, or verse 3 rather. Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. The source of Paul's joy here in verses 3 through 5 is the partnership in the gospel that he has enjoyed and experienced between himself and the Philippian church. Partner, partnership in the gospel brings joy to his heart. Now we experience this in our personal lives, right? We take joy in the fellowship that we have within the church. This past Sunday and being able to be back together again was such a sweet time. And I know for many, if not most of you who are watching in this format, you, you weren't able to be back with us yet and may not be for some time and, and, and for understandable reasons. But it was sweet to see friends, partners in the gospel, seeing one another again, in some cases for the first time in several weeks, and the joy and the gladness to that, brought, that that brought to our heart. But it's not just about friendships, right? It's about knowing that we have partners in the gospel. When, when we've really come to terms with the reality that our life is to be lived, pouring ourselves out for the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, when that becomes our sole focus in life, when that's the thing that moves us, when our feet hit the floor and we're mindful of the reality that we are here to ensure that people at the uttermost parts of the world would know that Jesus is king and that people who are at an arm, arm's reach in our own, own community know that Christ is the only source of salvation, the way, the truth, and the life. When, when that is the beat of our heart, we rejoice 
in the reality that there are others who are partnered with us in this gospel advancing mission. We rejoice in the reality that we are not at this mission alone, that we have friends who share this purpose, who are passionate about the same things, who have deep and abiding interest in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We made reference to this in weeks past, but it's appropriate here as well. There's something to going on the field, to going to the other side of the world and encountering other believers who have this single-minded focus on advancing the gospel. And there is immediately this kinship that is felt between two people who may not have otherwise known one another, but who share this partnership in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rejoice that there are other brothers and sisters in our church context, and even those who are strangers to you, who share your passion for the advancement of the gospel. You are not at this business alone. We see in an Old Testament example um, the kind of depression that sets in when we begin to feel as though we're isolated in this mission. Do you remember when Elijah went up on Mount Carmel and defeated by the fire of God the prophets of Baal? And within a very short period of time, Elijah is running from Jezebel. He's fleeing for his life. He's having a fit of depression. He's at the point of uh, being willing to have his life taken, at least, if not taking his own life. And God reminds Elijah in that moment that you are not alone in this ministry, that I have seven who have not bowed their knee to the Baals. Brothers and sisters, especially those of you who are watching by video, who may be in isolation and unable to be with friends and family, who have this burning desire to see the gospel of Jesus Christ advanced, to want to be used by God, and yet you're in this season of life where you're limited in so many ways, I want you to know that God has not 7,000, but thousands and thousands and thousands of individuals who are partners with you in the gospel. You may not see them face to face this side of the gospel, but there are countless other believers who share your heart for gospel advancement, who are your friends in spite of being strange faces, who love Jesus in the same ways that you do. Paul says, I rejoice and I'm compelled to pray with a joyful spirit because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They started with Paul in the beginning at Philippi and they have persisted through the ups and downs of life and ministry and they have remained partners with Paul in the gospel. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is a passage that I often cite, a verse that I often cite when talking with people about eternal security. If there's a single doctrine that we might isolate in this passage to sort of talk about and emphasize, it would be the doctrine of eternal security. That is the teaching of the gospel that says that when Jesus has saved you from your sin, there's nothing that you can do that can undo the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation. I prefer rather to talk not about eternal security, but about persevering or the perseverance of the saints. That's the traditional way that this doctrine has been described or titled, the perseverance of the saints. And what that doctrine teaches is this that when a person is truly born again, they will persevere with God over the duration of their life, that they will finish, finish the race of faith well. We might also describe that doctrine as the perseverance of God because our ability to persevere with God faithfully is not ultimately our ability. It is the strength and ability provided by Jesus himself through the work of the Spirit. Paul says... I am confident of this, that the work that God has begun in you, He will bring to perfection or to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. That is, that the God who has saved you in the beginning will keep you until the end. Don't you know that the God who has the power to save you has the ability to keep you, right? 
Now there's a reason that Paul is able to celebrate this truth with such confidence in our passage. Paul says, I am sure that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. But in so many ways, that is the product of, the confidence that is, is the product of their partnership with him in the gospel. Their partnering with him in the gospel is one source of Paul's joy, but there's a second mentioned in the remainder of verse 7. He says, it's right for me to think this way about you all. It's right for me to have this confidence. It's right for me to say this about the assurance of your salvation. Now, I want to note here, it's not always appropriate for us to speak with such confidence about a person's profession of faith. We've, we've sort of come to a place in the church where we, we almost immediately want to, begin, want to begin to provide affirmation for a person's profession of faith before seeing the evidence of that in an individual's life. Someone once mentioned to Charles Spurgeon about a number of converts that were supposed to have been made in a meeting that he'd held recently. And, and they said, I, I heard that so and, so and so many people were born again or were saved in this particular meeting. And Spurgeon's response was, we'll see. Time will tell. And that's the truth, isn't it? It's not always the way we come out of the blocks in the race of faith that tell the real story, but how we finish the race. Paul has this confidence because he has observed in the Philippian church the fact that they began with him from the first and have continued with him through some hardships as partners in the gospel. It's right for me, he says, to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And not only are you partners in the gospel, but you are partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. You've partnered with me in the gospel, and you've partnered with me in the gospel because you're partners with me in grace. You're partners with me in grace in the sense that you have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are born again. And brothers and sisters, when we are partners in grace, we'll be partners in the gospel. Now, Paul backs into this reality because first in his mind is the idea of their assistance to him. They've, they've helped him greatly, and much of Philippians is focused on saying thank you to the Philippian church. But the reason that he's able to say thank you to the Philippian church as partners in the gospel is because they were first partners with him in grace. They have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because they have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, their life is marked by gospel grace. He says, you've been partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. Their being touched by grace has manifested itself in that they have stuck with Paul through thick and thin. He says, you've been with me both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. So he's imprisoned and they're with him in defense and establishment of the gospel. These are legal terms, which has led some to believe that Paul was at some point in this first imprisonment in some kind of trial where he was uh, brought to a place of giving an actual uh, court defense for his belief in the gospel and a defense in his actions as a result of the gospel. It really highlights the faithfulness of the Philippian church to the Apostle Paul. The city of Philippi is a very patriotic city during Paul's lifetime. In the years before Paul would have done ministry there, in the, the decades uh, prior to this particular moment in Philippian history, there were great gold mines there. It was strategically placed within the Roman Empire. So Rome took a great interest in the city of Philippi colonized the city of Philippi as a Roman colony, sent uh, Roman forces to make their life there and sort of in, in, enculturate the people with Roman culture and serve as uh, influential uh, figures within the city. Uh, this, the, the empire of Rome was deeply invested in the city of Philippi, and as a result, the city of Philippi was deeply invested in the Roman empire. So there's a, there's a deep and abiding um, patriotism, Roman patriotism about uh, the people of Philippi. Now understand that Paul has been arrested by, he has been imprisoned by the Roman authorities. 
Now, the reason Paul would have been imprisoned by the Roman authorities is because they believed that somehow his gospel ministry, his gospel work, was a danger, it was a threat to the well-being of the Roman Empire. And not only is he causing these skirmishes among the people with his talk of the gospel and the exclusivity of the gospel, but if, if you can think for a moment about an empire that believed their well-being to be the result of the favor of many, many gods, now being interrupted by a man who's preaching that there is but one true and living God who has sought to save the world from their sin through the perfect work of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that that one true and living God alone is worthy of our worship and praise. This is unsettling to the Roman people. So, so Paul is, in many ways, an enemy of the state, doing ministry in a deeply patriotic setting. And in spite of the various reasons people in Philippi might have hated Paul or turned their back on Paul, you can just imagine all of the complicated issues that would have arisen from this background and these circumstances. They had stuck with Paul through thick and thin. When forced to make a decision between their partner in the gospel, who was the Apostle Paul, and their patriotic convictions, their sense of affection for and connection to the Roman Empire, they had chosen to stand with their brother in Christ. The source of Paul's joy is the Philippian church's partnership in the gospel and the reality that they were partners with him in grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. They were true friends of the Apostle Paul, and this was in and of itself the product of the power of the gospel in each of their lives. In verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. It doesn't take reading long in the book of Philippians to get the impression, the, the, the reasonable impression, that there's a real sense of connectedness that exists between Paul and the Philippian church. Even when we come to those passages in Philippians where Paul is correcting sometimes severely the church at Philippi, think of Philippians chapter 4 where Paul actually identifies Udiah and Syntyche, ladies in the church who are at odds, and there's a little gossiping and backbiting that seems to be happening within the church. The, the tone that Paul seems to be taking within the context of Philippians 1 through 4 is, is not one of harshness, but one that says, Udiah and Syntyche, I want you to realize the sweetness of fellowship that you have at Philippi. I want you to understand the preciousness of fellowship. Realize what's at stake if you persist in this hostility toward one another. Patch it up because there's far too much at stake. And brothers and sisters, I hope that you realize the preciousness, the sweetness of fellowship that we enjoy as a church. And I want you to know that because the devil prowls about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, that there are seasons when this unity, when this fellowship, when this preciousness is fragile. And it's the responsibility of the people of God to guard to steward well, to manage well, to be mindful of the preciousness of the partnership in the gospel that we enjoy. How sweet it is to be partners in the gospel and to be partners in grace. So we've looked at first the source of Paul's joy, his partners in the gospel, his partners in grace. But I, I want you to see in the second section of our text, verses 9 through 11, the content of Paul's prayer. His thankfulness for the church naturally flows into his prayerfulness for the church. He remembers them, and when he remembers them, his heart is overjoyed at, at what he remembers about them. Every remembrance brings him gladness of heart, and so naturally he begins to pray for them. Verse 9 says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. 
Now it reads as though in our English translations, as though there's a list of things about which Paul is praying for. But it's pretty clear in the original text that there are two things that have explanation attached to them for which Paul is praying. He prays first that they would abound in love. In fact, that they would abound all the more or more and more, or that they would continue abounding in love more and more. In verse 9, he says, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing. That's, that's the essential element here. That's the main thing about which Paul is praying. And, and everything else from there forward explains what he intends to result from their abounding in love. In other words, Paul says, when I think about the love that you have one for another, the sweetness of fellowship that we alluded to moments ago, when I think of that, my prayer for you, my prayer of thanksgiving for you, is that that kind of love will abound all the more that you'll continue to love one another the way that you have in the past and even beyond the way that you've loved one another in the past. The, the explanation, the further detail of that continues in verse 9, that your love would keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, that is, that you would know right from wrong. In verse 10, so that you can approve the things that are superior, not only that you would grow in love so that you could discern right from wrong, but that you could discern the best from the better or the better from the good. I, I pray for you that you will abound in love and that you'll grow in knowledge in every kind of discernment. I said to you earlier that Philippians is one of four letters of Paul that are referred to as prison epistles, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, and Philemon. In Colossians chapter 1, there is a prayer that Paul prays for the church at Colossae, and it's very similar to what Paul prays for the Philippian church here. It may help to provide a, a little commentary on what Paul intends here in verse 9. Again, praying that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, approving what is right, what is wrong, what is best, and what is, what is good, and so on and so forth. There's a connection here in Philippians 1 and as well in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 11, as Paul prays for the church at Colossae, between our capacity for loving God and loving neighbor and our knowledge of God. And here's what I'd say to you about that. The better you know the character of God, the better you're able to love God in a manner worthy of that character. And the better you love God, the better you're able to love your neighbor. It is a good thing to simply dwell, to meditate on the person of God, the character of God, the attributes of God. For me especially, prayerfully, if I give time to focusing on who God is, the power that He holds, His, His perfect righteousness, His, His absolute otherness and holiness, that there is none like Him. The simple things, the fact that for God there is no beginning and there is no end. This is one of the most fundamental aspects of the character of God, His eternality. And yet we have no categories in our mind for understanding someone with no beginning and no end. That in spite of His existing in eternity, that He does not change. He is steadfast and He is strong, a God of order who shuns and brings structure to chaos. He's a great, great God. The better we know Him, the better our hearts are steeled from anxiety. The better we know Him, the, the, the greater peace we have and confidence at, at who He is and what He's provided for us in His Son. When you know God, you'll love God. And when you love God, you'll love neighbor well. There is a real reasonable connection between this prayer that Paul has that they would love more and more one another, that they would abound in love all the more, that they would continue in love all the more, and this desire that they would truly know God and His will for their life, that they'd have the ability to discern the good from the evil, approve the things that are superior. Now in verse 10, Paul transitions to this second major prayer request that he has for the Philippian church. Verse 10 reads, if we read from the beginning of the verse, so that you can approve the things that are superior. You can't see the transition here, but it's, there's a really unfortunate 
a verse number placement here that doesn't allow for us to see that this is, again, the second main thing. But he asks that they can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the two things that Paul is praying for for the Philippian church is one, that they would abound in love, and two, he prays for the holiness of the church or that their character be made complete. This idea of being pure and blameless in the day of Christ. This is a second major request that Paul has for the church. He loves them. They've loved him. He wants them to grow in the knowledge of God so that they might abound in their love for one another. But he also wants them to stand before Jesus pure and blameless, prepared for that day. There is a a blamelessness, a purity that is conveyed at the moment of our salvation. When we are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast, our sin is taken away, removed from the mind of God as far as the east is from the west. At that moment, we are granted the perfect righteousness of Jesus. It's called the doctrine of imputation. We are given the righteousness of Jesus so that when God looks upon us, He doesn't see our sins. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son. The one who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Often the New Testament speaks of our being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are covered by the righteousness of Jesus. But that imputation of righteousness, that gift of Jesus' righteousness that God observes in us, has an effect in our life. It results in ethical righteousness. That is because we have been forgiven of our sin and accredited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our life begins to be shaped not so much by our old sin nature, but by the presence of the spirit of righteousness that now abides in us. I want you, he says, to be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, which by faith, as partners in grace, you are positionally. But Paul says, I want you to go beyond this and practically pursue righteousness in your personal life. In verse 11, he describes this practical righteousness, this ethical righteousness. He says, I want you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God or to the, to the glory and the praise of God. I want that positional righteousness, that righteousness that has been conveyed to you by faith to begin to have real results in your life. And I want you to know, friends, that if you have been declared righteous by God, that that declaration does have practical effects in your life. You begin to bear the fruit of righteousness that comes through the salvation that you've had, that you've found in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm praying that you would abound in love and that it, as individuals and as the church, you would pursue personal holiness. Now, surely, these aren't the only sources of Paul's joy and these aren't the only things that Paul would have prayed for for the Philippian church. But they're pretty good starting points. As we pray in our personal life, as we pray for our church family, even those of you who are guests who may belong to another church family as you pray for your local assembly of saints, we ought to be praying that we would abound in love, especially in such a bitter and hostile generation, that we would be people who are character, characterized by the love that we have for one another. Come what may, we know that we love one another. We need that kind of fellowship, don't we? We, we need to know that on our best day or on our worst day, when we've made the right decision or when we've made the bad decision, that there are people around us who are going to love us and support us and encourage us like a brother. They're going to be at our side. We need to be praying for one another that we would abound 
in love. Abound in the knowledge of God, Paul says, and you'll abound in love. And we need to be praying for personal holiness in our life and for the pursuit of holiness in, in, our, in the congregation that we call our local church, in the, in the body with which we gather. I've said this several times, and I, I certainly believe this to be the case. Somewhere along the way in American Christianity, holiness has fallen out of favor. It's no longer in vogue to talk at length about holiness and ethical righteousness and the pursuit of what is good, what is moral, what is right. But as the people of God, we ought to be a people as followers of the perfectly righteous Son of God who pursue, pursue holiness in our life. The Bible says, be holy. God speaks, be holy as I am holy. We ought to be about purging ourselves of sin, understanding clearly that we'll not experience perfection this side of heaven and that our efforts at holiness cannot win us favor with God. Only the perfect righteousness of Jesus can do that. But as the people of God who've been forgiven by sin at the high price of Christ's blood shed in misery on the cross, we should never take delight or be about the enjoyment of the sin that nailed the Savior to the tree. Paul says, because you've brought me such delight, because my heart rejoices at every remembrance of you, I pray that you'd abound in love and that you'd pursue righteousness in every aspect of your life. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the goodness of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful partners in the gospel. God, we thank you as believers that by grace through faith, you've made us partners in grace. God, I pray that the binding power of the gospel on our heart would keep us near, faithful to, diligent in the service of our partners in the gospel through thick and through thin. God, I pray that you would help each of us individually to abound in love, to grow in grace and understanding, and as we know more of your character, to be moved to higher heights of worship. And as we know you and we love you more intimately, God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to love our neighbor even as ourselves, the direct product of our love for you. God, I, I pray that you would search us over by your Spirit even in this moment, Lord, where we've given ourselves over to unrighteousness, where we've dabbled in sin and enjoyed the things of this world in a way that's unbecoming of a believer, I pray that you'd bring conviction, that you'd break our hearts over the things that we've done, that any anxiety and unsettling in our soul would be set at ease by the promise of the gospel that keeps us even in seasons of unfaithfulness. And yet at the same time, there'd be a, a, a real want an abiding prick of the Spirit that would call us away from the things of this world to walk in the light as you are in the light. God, we ask that you'd forgive us of our sin. and We rejoice in the promise of the Scripture that as we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, we ask these things in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus. Amen and amen. If you're watching with us this morning and you've never called out to God for the forgiveness of your sin, I want you to know that no amount of effort at holiness, no amount of ethical righteousness, no amount of doing good can win you favor with God who is in heaven. That you're a sinful person and that God is a holy God. And the only way to be reconciled given your unholiness and God's absolute holiness is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The good news for sinners is that God has promised that all who call upon the name of Jesus will be forgiven of their sins, saved for eternity in heaven. He promises that in that moment when we call out in sincerity, believing in our hearts that Jesus is God's only Son who died in our place and rose again the third day. He's gracious at giving us His Holy Spirit 
to lead us, to guide us, and direct us in the life he has for us to live in the here and now. If that's you, a sinful person without hope, why don't you call out to the God of great grace and hope and find forgiveness for your sin? Maybe you've called out to God, you've been born again, but you've never been faithful in believer's baptism. Or maybe you're a believer and you're looking for a church home, a place to partner in the gospel and in grace. We'd love to have you as a part of our faith family at Longview Point. On the screen before you is a list of our pastors and numbers uh, with which you can contact us. We'd love to hear from you and hear of how the Lord is at work in your life. You can reach us with prayer requests or other requests for that matter at prayer at longviewpoint.org. And I want you to know that it's always our delight to hear of how the Lord's at work from, from you and to have the opportunity to follow up with you in a variety of different ways in the days ahead. I look forward to the time when we're all able to be together under normal circumstances once again to see you face to face. But until then, know that we're praying for you just because you're out of sight doesn't mean you're out of mind. If there's any need that arises whatsoever, please communicate those to pastoral staff. And again, it will be our delight uh, to follow up on any needs that you might have. Know that we love you in the truth. We love you in Christ and can't wait to see you again. I hope you have a great Lord's Day together with your families.